This is a production of Cornell University. All right, so uh, welcome to everybody uh, watching live, uh, watching recording, or listening to us on the podcast. Uh, shout out to Bed Polymer, who does a wonderful job uh, tweeting great pictures that I get to use uh, in these presentations. And you can see, right, uh, throughout the Northeast, uh, you know, we're getting ready, right? The turf is still dormant, looks pretty brown. You know, temperatures are just starting to come up. Uh, and of course, this was the topic a couple of weeks ago uh, when we had Chris Sitko on talking about, you know, early season ways of accelerating early season care. Um, so with that, uh, I'll put up a couple of slides here from my pal, Greg Chorvis uh, in, in the Hudson Valley. Greg is always so kind to share some of the wonderfully professional and progressive things he does down there at Canteen. Uh, in Saugerties, uh, Greg's been there quite a long time and in leadership positions uh, in the state. So big shout out to Greg. And here's a little strategy used for expanding the dugouts, right? To give uh, the athletes a little more room uh, during the spacing time. I'm happy to report I got my first shot yesterday. So in one more month, uh, many of you may actually start to see me in person if that works out okay. In the meantime, uh, as we start to look at our Turfgrass forecast weather page, we have a web page dedicated to this. If for those of you that might not know that, uh, we've had it for about a dozen years now. Art D. Gaetano and director of the Climate Center puts all this together that provides this data that we distribute regionally. And you can see that, you know, you go to the southern part of the region down in the Delmarva area. Uh, and you're starting to see uh, we're getting about three weeks ahead of normal. Uh, these are days ahead of normal, right? So you look up here by the lake and you got Rochester and Buffalo already surging ahead uh, of normal based on the data from uh, the 24th. Now, it does not appear as we talked to the golf guys yesterday and, and RT Gaetano yesterday morning, it does not appear that rainfall is in the horizon for anybody in the in the continental United States, except for maybe uh, along the Rio Grande uh, there in south south southwestern Texas. But short of that, uh, everybody is likely to be for the next week or two uh, above normal temperatures and uh, in this case below normal uh, precipitation and above normal temperatures. So uh, warm and dry, which creates a very interesting condition for us on sports fields where, you know, foot traffic uh, is, is generally going to be moderated a little bit uh, with a little drier soil moisture. Now too dry can be another problem. Now the soil, since we're talking about soil moisture, soil temperature still uh, appears to be well into the, you know, just in the forties until you get into major uh, metropolitan areas again, along the lake, and we're just starting to creep into the low 50s here in the metropolitan New York area and on places on Long Island. Now, even down to the south, uh, just a couple of days ago, they were just at 53 degrees. So just keep in mind, they're just, you're just not going to get a lot of growth with soil temperatures uh, that, that, that low. Now, one of the things we did talk about again yesterday with the golf guys, and it's good for you guys in the sports world to understand this, that, you know, our pre-emergent herbicides, if you're using these things on sports fields, first off, if you're not using uh, Pilex or Tenacity, um, you know, the, the HPPD bleaching herbicides that allow for overseeding, uh, you know, you do not want to use a pre-emergent herbicide where you're going to do some overseed. Because obviously, other than those two, uh, most of them are going to restrict any success you're going to have. So you want to be really careful. 
as you start to think about these pre-emergent applications at, in springtime here, uh, that you recognize it does limit your uh, overseeding options. And further, you know, getting it on this early with most of those things having a 10 to 12 week lifespan, uh, you will still have crabgrass pressure um, coming later. So I would say we have a little bit of time yet uh, throughout much of New York state uh, where, where we don't need to get our pre-emergent herbicides. Because where you look at where crabgrass is germinating, it's still barely germinating down into the, you know, south of the Mason-Dixon line, if you will. Okay. Now, um, one of the things we've noticed is a lot of our low-cut fields, fields that we cut fairly low, um, are doing a little bit better. And you can see some of the brown tissue. We've seen this a lot with tall fescue turf left a little bit long through the winter. So here, here's an advantage of lower cut turf. It's not something I would suggest you did uh, dramatically right now because you're likely to cause some thinning uh, and then create opportunities for weeds to come in. But this is in a normal cool season, uh, you know, sports turf environment. Again, from Greg Chorvis, Greg uh, was kind enough again to send an email yesterday uh, and, and has shown some examples what he's doing right now in the Hudson Valley. You can see these guys pulling the covers off the turf up here on the top right. And then a look at what it looks like where it's not covered, you know, compared to where it's covered. So you can see you get a significant advantage uh, from using these covers in small areas uh, strategically. Now, you do, of course, put turf a little bit at risk here should we snap down into the 20s and the teens so greg knows that there's continued warm temperatures coming and so he's comfortable taking this cover off now and and getting the the turf actively growing and able to tolerate some some traffic and get some get some uh, temperatures going into the soil so on our fields here uh our varsity soccer fields where we've started to let them out there both on the uh, ryegrass poa, which you can see uh, uh, on the left and the right here, uh, these ryegrass poa fields that they practice on have probably had three or four sessions on them in the last several days. They're getting about an hour session a day now. Uh, our coaches are really good. They, they try to stay away from the goal mouse for the most part, but pretty much anywhere they're going right now, you can see them digging into the turf and you can see the cleat marks here really developing for those of you watching live or watching on video, you can really see the uh, cleat marks here. And this is when you start to throw seed. This is when, if I had a ryegrass field, and that's what this is, a rye poa field, it used to be bluegrass, but now it's transition. We're going to start chucking seed like crazy because I got bare soil exposed. And as long as I've got that soil exposed, you know, I can get some ryegrass in there and, and maybe not germinate right away, but it's there and it's getting cleated in. And if they keep moving the traffic around, I might be able to at least keep up with it with warmer temperatures coming. Maybe what's there will start to grow and the seeds that I put down, you know, what, what am I, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, two pounds per thousand uh, in your high traffic areas, right? Now, the other thing, as we start talking about uh, getting these sports fields ready, obviously that traffic if we have sand-based systems, right? So our systems are draining pretty good. But if not, obviously soil management's gonna be a key. But again, you know, you wanna be really careful about how you start doing these things early in the season, uh, the moisture of your soil, how effective it's gonna be. If your turf's already thinning out, 
you know, can you get out there and do any of these things is the question. But for sure, what I would say is, if you're starting to feel the soil already becoming firmer and firmer in places where the traffic is focused, take an aerator out and just do a small area. You don't have to do the whole field. Targeted care is the way to get the best use out of your resources, right? Not just say, okay, I got to aerate. Oh, I got to aerate. You know, it's two hours. It's two guys. It's blah, blah, blah. Or maybe even you're going to airway it where you throw it on the back of the tractor and it goes as fast as you can drive uh, if you feel the whole field needs it. But what we're finding is if they move the traffic around a little bit, there's only a few areas where I might even need it because we're getting them to work with us. Now, if you can't get them to work with you and the gold mouths are starting to wear out, um, and this is true for synthetic as well, start checking your depths for synthetic, but for, for natural grass systems, you know, get out there and do some target aerating, some target sand top dressing. In the meantime, and as we turn to the topic with my friend, Brian Winka, who, you know, I think I've spent a total, you know, maybe an hour with Brian, maybe two hours of, in person uh, in our lives. I hope we get to change that after the pandemic. But I wanted to bring him here because he's really an expert in managing some of these things I, I see guys playing around with. Again, the beauty of Twitter, and I'm sorry I didn't uh, pay attention to who showed this, but this is just a wonderful example of using an old-fashioned tool here to just start out right, get a nice clean line uh, on your infield. It just it presents such a different appearance uh, if you got the time. Now, of course, you know, any conversation about infield skin should begin with, you know, proper construction and, and maintenance that's based on standards. And you have access to these ASTM standards uh, for these skin surfaces. You know, but the reality is this is what a lot of us are confronted with. Uh, either in the early spring or, or, or at other times, uh, heavy use. Uh, you know, if you don't have the right material, uh, in this case, I think it's a DuraEdge product. And, you know, they're, they're touting how this is a revolutionary product that you can work differently. And, and obviously, it's, it's part of good construction and good maintenance. But if you have the right material in there, obviously, it's going to make a significant difference. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we, we're, we're battling a lot of these things, especially at school district levels where pesticide use is restricted, right? Where you can't just go out and use glyphosate um, You routinely. You can use some, there are some burn back products you can use. They're fairly costly. They require multiple applications and, and there's the rigmarole uh, associated with that. But this is the reality of a lot of early spring stuff. So Brian, that's the first thing I want to get in your head. The second thing, of course, is the thing that the minute I saw it and I spent it like 15 minutes with you, my head was spinning so much. We did a podcast together and I've been so pleased to see uh, the work Munshaw was doing uh, when he was at Greg was doing when he, when he was at Kentucky. And I, I know uh, Goatley, <clears throat> I'm assuming there's a lot more projects going on, but the incorporation of Kentucky bluegrass into a Bermuda grass system. Uh, taking advantage of both of them. And of course, you and Greg have uh, done a good job in, in promoting this uh, in social media. Uh, and, and, you know, you can see in this case, uh, Greg's talking about the side that received the traffic during the month of June has better quality. Um, and, and so you can see then the non-traffic side here. So, so uh, really good traffic tolerance. Um, and of course, I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. Uh, 
the YouTube channel uh, has the STMA. You and Greg did a Blue Muta for beginners. And I have to say, it was worth uh, the entire watch. I absolutely love this. I, I want to commend it to everybody who's interested in this topic. And I'll stop sharing now, Brian, and, you know, and just uh, turn to you and say, first off, uh, big thanks for bringing uh, this idea and concept. And, and what a great job you did uh, with Greg uh, highlighting that. So let's start with uh, the Bermuda thing, because I'm sure a lot of people listen like, Frank, okay, we're in New York. What are you talking about this for? But many of them also know I've been working on a project in Brooklyn where we've been trying to kill about 12 acres of Bermuda grass and we're not very successful at it. And so these ideas of two grass systems, I don't believe are far off. In fact, I'm gonna shut up here and ask you, Brian, do you remember or did you ever look into the work that Dave Minner and Rock Aswa did many years ago when Dave was in Iowa? Uh, and, and started, uh, he left Missouri and then went up there and him and Rock were doing these Bermuda grass uh, trials in Iowa, you know, planting Bermuda grass in Iowa under high traffic. So welcome to the show. Uh, I gave you a whole bunch to unpack, but let's start out with how the Blue Muda idea came to you. Okay. Thanks for having me today. Um, so the, the idea came from, like most people in the transition zone, there's always issues with um, transitioning back and forth from warm season, cool season, whether you overseed uh, a ryegrass, you know, traditional ryegrass overseed. Um, and then, you know, the winter kill was, was the big thing, was not knowing every year, you know, a lot of years it's a mild winter and it's not an issue, but on those years that it is an issue, it, it becomes costly for you. And, and at the time I worked at a park and rec facility, um, we experienced winter kill one year and we had to shut some fields down once the uh, ryegrass was removed. So um, I played around a couple of years trying to leave a perennial ryegrass in on the Bermuda. And it just, it may work in other climates, but in St. Louis, it doesn't, it, it'll work for 10 months out of the year and then it dies out. So fast forward a couple of years, um, some of the newer bluegrasses, specifically HGT, um, introduced to the market. And I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to throw this on a, on a soccer field this fall. And just, I was just curious to see what it would look like. And didn't see huge results that first fall, because um, bluegrass is a little slower out of the gate than what a ryegrass would be. But that next spring, that was one of the best looking fields that I had. So, um, so now my mind was really going, I had sat through STMA that winter. Um, there were a couple talks on phrase mowing. Uh, there were some talks on uh, the guys up at the Maryland sports complex did uh, seeding and pl to play in 35 days on their soccer field. And they were using the HGT. So I basically put those two concepts together and we, we phrase mode two soccer fields that were quick stand Bermuda. And then we interceded HGT right into them. And that's kind of where it started. Um, Dr. Brad Friesenberg from University of Missouri worked with him on a bunch of different things. He was at my complex on a fairly regular basis. And I, I think the comment was, this shouldn't be working, but it is. And you should probably start telling some people what you're, what you've got here. Yeah, so 100%. it was, it was by accident, 
but once we figured out it worked, you know, then we looked into it a little bit more. And that's kind of where, uh, like you said, Goatley and Munshaw and, and uh, Friesenberg, you know, we all kind of got together at an STMA event. Yeah. And, you know, there were other people that we asked and they, they all kind of said we're crazy and that's a dumb idea. And, yeah, because you know, they not. never saw it. If they saw it, they would. That's one of those seeing is believing. Listen, let me ask you a couple of questions. Let's unpack yeah. this a little bit. Because as Bermuda grass are coming north, Bermuda grass is coming north on the golf business on tees now. Yep. You're seeing them putting it on south facing bunker faces as well. So it's not like this is like ridiculous that Bermuda grass is coming further north, but the risk is pretty high. How did the Bermuda grasses come through this past winter where you guys got, you know, smacked around pretty good in the cold there? Uh, how have they survived and what can you say about, I'm sure the Bermuda fields you're looking at where you live? So far, I've seen a couple fields where managers have pulled plugs, brought them inside, put them in a window. We've got green Bermuda there. Um, I think because we were snow covered, we had some insulation. Uh, we were fairly mild up until we had that deep, deep freeze for that two weeks. And I mean, some of my customers in Southern Missouri, we went from negative 23 at a low. And then a week later, they were 73 degrees for their high. So we had a huge swing. So right now we're seeing, we're not seeing the, the depth that we thought we'd see yet, but Bermuda still hasn't completely woken up. So okay. um, we're probably still another month and a half before okay. we really see the damage there. Okay, but so a couple of things. One is, um, there's two things I want to talk about the grasses. Uh, one is your continued suggestion that the, uh, the Bermuda helps the bluegrass with heat stress, uh, uh, the blue, the Bermuda, the Bermuda grass helps the bluegrass with heat stress tolerance and the bluegrass helps the Bermuda survive some low temperature kill. Uh, how is, I know that's what I remember us talking about on the podcast a while ago, uh, is that still true? Are you still seeing that happen? And then, you know, the part two question is, uh, it was pretty much Barvette, and now maybe we're learning it might be other Bermudas and other uh, grasses as well. But l let's start out with the enhanced stress tolerance to both. So, so yeah, we, we don't, I don't have the scientific data, I guess it's more observational, but we do see in the summertime, that as that bluegrass stresses, it essentially recedes into the canopy and your field looks like a Bermuda field. As it cools off, that bluegrass comes back out. And then through the wintertime, obviously having a darker green surface, you're going to hold more heat into that canopy. So whether it's five degrees or 10 degrees, you know, that I don't have the, the data on, but you can't deny that a darker surface is gonna hold more heat there. Um, so, so that's kind of what we see. Um, and then, yes, so HGT was the original bluegrass that I worked with for years. Um, I, I love that grass. It's very aggressive. Uh, it's traffic tolerant, heat tolerant, but it's not the only grass that this system works with. Um, obviously Munshaw who works with Mountain View now, we, we've, we've worked with 365. Um, that, that was the mix that was in Blue Muta at the Rose Bowl the last couple of years. Um, and there are other bluegrasses out there. So I, 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 I'm always careful to say, you know, I, 
I used HGT personally. It's a great grass. I know it works in the system. I know 365 works in the system. I'm not saying other grasses don't. I just don't have that firsthand experience. I know Dr. Munshaw, when he was at Kentucky, had a ton of plots with different varieties of bluegrass, and he could probably rattle off whose yeah. was good and whose wasn't. And so let me ask you, how far north, obviously, if Goatley's playing around with it, Virginia, that's right in our backyard here. Is, is that the furthest north anybody's been playing around with this, uh, this, this uh, blue, blue muter? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think that's probably one of the further north. Um, I know we've got some in, in northern Ohio. Um, and then so we have to move, and then Brian, we got to move to the cold tolerant Bermudas, like Tahoma, yes. thirty-one, Lat thirty-six, right? Yes, Tahoma, Northbridge, Latitude. Yes, they're going to be a little bit more cold tolerant. Um, so yes, going north, obviously, uh, the Bermuda is going to be the, the, the biggest limiting factor there. Right. And then going south, um, you know, that's the one we keep pushing it even further and further. Um, I've got guys in, in Norman, Oklahoma that have got some, some uh, bluegrass put in down there. Um, so I think the further south, I think, it, I think the, the range maybe goes a little bit further south than it does go north, just because you know, Bermuda is just, it's, it's limited on how far north it's going to go. Right. Well, and, and obviously the heat stress tolerance of the bar vet is, uh, uh, you know, really important. And, and listen, I personally think some of this has to do with the rhizomatous network that gets created underneath that allows that stability that ryegrass doesn't give you either, right? Ryegrass is a bunch type grass. It's not knitting in to the Bermuda like the bluegrass does. So I, I just think that's enormously fascinating and, you know, wanted to get you on to chat about that. Carl, are there questions that anybody had to this point about Bermuda? Cause I want to go to the infield skin stuff. Cause I know that's another pertinent uh, part of our conversation today. Yeah. You guys covered actually Ben asked the question uh, exactly what you just asked Frank, how far, how far North can we go with that sort of thing? So, uh, I think you guys covered that. Um, now it's now. Uh, yeah, I would love to hear about the infield skin stuff. Yeah. So baseball, spring training. You know, yeah. Let's let's uh, let's hear about. Yeah, that yeah. opening bit. days next week. O opening yeah. days, I think Thursday at the stadium. I think they're going to let, you know, several thousand into Yankee Stadium. So we're very happy about that, Brian. I'm sure as you're a baseball guy like yeah. me, and I'm jonesing for 162 games. That thing, that thing they gave us last year was okay, but. I need a long season that I can eat a lot of peanuts uh, in front of. So let's, let's, uh, let's talk about this now, because um, what are you, what do you uh, say are the standard things um, guys should be thinking about in the spring presuming, okay, let's presume they didn't really set it up exactly how they wanted to in, in, at the end of last season. So Talk a little bit about how COVID played around for you in the Midwest and then what you've seen the skins go through uh, up until this point. Okay. So it was kind of all over the place, but what we did see were a lot of infields basically get abandoned for, for months at a time. So the slide you showed earlier, that's pretty indicative of what a lot of infields looked like. So um, we did here in Missouri get some fall ball in. So guys, 
most of them did get cleaned up. So if you, uh, hopefully you're not starting with weeds all over your infield, but at this point, if you are, you know, um, you can do an aggressive nail drag, try and, and get that vegetation off of that skinned infield. Um, one of the big things that I always recommend coming out of winter is where the freeze and thaw cycle is uh, have managers get a uh, like a two and a half ton dual drum roller, roll your infield, get it compacted back down. Um, having a positive surface drainage is, is really key. No matter what kind of infield material you have, if you don't have positive surface drainage, you're gonna have water issues. So we wanna make sure that that water sheets off, not necessarily perks into that infield soil. Um, I still see some, some specs on some construction jobs where they wanna put drain tiles in the skin. I, I'm always, I recommend they don't do that. Those, those drain tiles tend to not really work. They get silted in. And uh, again, you want that water to sheet off. Um, and then, um, as we talk, not only infields, but the mound and the plate areas, moisture management is, is really the key there. Um, you could buy the highest end of highest end clay and put it on your mound and plate. But if you don't have good moisture and you're not covering those areas, um, you're really wasting your money. So if you really want to protect those areas, moisture is key. Um, and then same with the infield skin, moisture is, is a big one that you want to have that cleat in and cleat out on that. You, you don't want it to be rock hard. I see that too many times where uh, whether it's a manager or a coach is afraid to put water on his skinned infield. And once you show them the proper moisture and you show them how the ball bounces, it plays better. Um, and then, you know, the guys are sliding. It's not like you're sliding on concrete. Those things are all um, key as we look at moisture management. Um, so can you, you know, I've seen guys, um, again, let's presume that they're, they're getting them close to in shape. And they, you know, I think a lot of the problems we have, uh, particularly at the small school districts, where they just, you know, they don't have the know-how and, and no one knows how to strategically make it better with a little bit of money, like just doing an infield or something and leaving the outfield. Um, I've seen and, and really like, because we have it here at, at our school, um, synthetic, uh, systems, all synthetic infield systems, uh, with just a mound as clay, even, even the batter's box is synthetic, but assuming that, you know, are there some simple things like, okay, make sure it's got the weeds out, make sure you get a nail drag and a roll on it, that it's firm. How much after that can I, you know, then if, if you got a little labor, cover those areas because they'll be really good. Now, what about conditioners? What about things you can spread on the surface that might help with holding moisture? Because as you saw, you got the same thing. We're heading into a dry spell, which, yep. you know, we like in many ways, but in other ways, we got the added problem up here, Brian. I don't think guys have any irrigation even fired up yet. Yeah, so uh, will conditioner help me manage some of the moisture in the surface? Yes. So when we talk conditioners, I always explain it where that is a mulch. It's like a mulch on your skin. Um, it should be about a quarter to half inch on top. And then when we talk conditioners, we talk calcine, which is going to absorb more um, than what an expanded shale would. So I typically like, especially at the high school level, 
we'll start the season with a calcine because it's going to absorb more water. It's going to hold it there. And then as we get into summer, whether it's a park and rec or if high school is using that field in the summer, we'll start to put in an expanded shale because it absorbs less. So it's going to let that water filter through and hydrate that, that infield skin. So again, it, it's all about that moisture management. So it's good to kind of have both conditioners in your arsenal as you move throughout the season. And, and, and there you go, Brian, that, that is absolutely the perfect way to end this thing. Uh, Carl questions. Uh, oh, we're at the witching hour. I'll, I'll take an early uh, minute here and thank you, Brian, while maybe people thinking of questions really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it's so great to hear from you and, it's, I know you have a wealth of experience and, you know, to me, you're every like an extension agent in the middle part of the country. Cause I know uh, you've been very thoughtful about this for a really long time. So big thanks for taking the time to join us. Um, hey, Carl, Brian, we got any you. questions for Brian as we get out of here? No questions. I think, uh, I think you guys covered it all. I put a link to the YouTube STMA video with, with Brian uh, and Greg, that's, that's a, it's a cool watch for the blue, blue Buda for beginners. Um, so we'll also put that, uh, the link below in, in the YouTube video as well. Um, right, again, 30 minutes, fastest 30 minutes in turf. Thanks to all our live audience for attending. Uh, thanks for listening or watching on YouTube and, and Apple Podcasts. Brian, thank you again for joining us. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. This has been a production of Cornell University. On the web at cornell.edu.